0: Father, we come this morning with all of our praises and all of our thanksgiving. We come lifting up to you all the gifts that we have experienced by your hand, all the good things we have in life, most of all the gift of your Son and salvation and him and through the Spirit which we have received. We come this morning with our confessions and our sins, knowing that we can approach you with confidence, knowing that Jesus, the crucified and risen one, is our intercessor. His blood cries our innocence, knowing that we are forgiven as we come to your throne to ask for forgiveness. We're freed from all of our mistakes and sins. We pray that you would Help us as we go forward, that you would continue to free us from struggles and and strongholds that we have. We pray that you would continue to guide us, the the Spirit um, would continue to form us into people who follow you faithfully. And we pray this morning that your spirit, that same spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave, would be here present this morning, would be in our hearts and our minds, would be speaking to us and that that same transformative power of, of death being defeated and turned into life would be at work inside of our hearts, inside of our minds, and would be made manifest and evident to the people around us, the lives that we are able to live because of your great love for us. Speak to us this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, it is good to see everyone here this morning. Um, this morning is a little bittersweet for me because we are ending a sermon series um, that has lasted for a while. So I think this is part twenty one or twenty two uh, and we had about a five or six at least week break because of Harvey um, and different other things. So I think it's been about seven months or so uh, approximately since we started this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I can remember back then, um, I was so young and naive. Um, I can remember being excited, so excited about what might happen in my life and in our lives as we sat under the teaching of Jesus, as we looked at what I think is maybe its most authoritative teaching. And as we come to an end of a series that's long like this, um, it's bittersweet. I'm, I'm happy to end it. Um, because we've been in it for a while. I'm happy for what's coming next. We move into the Advent season next week. And so we'll, we'll have a series um, called uh, God's Christmas Music. And we'll look at a psalm each week that corresponds with the themes of Advent, love, hope, joy, and peace. And I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but it's, it's bittersweet as well because we're now leaving the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so this is our, our last time together, uh, at least for now. Uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, and we will read how Jesus chooses to finish his sermon, and we will hopefully respond faithfully, just like the people that day were called to respond faithfully. If you have a Bible, open up with me now, please, to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have one, there's a black hardback around you underneath the seat that you can pick up and read along with us. The endings of sermons are usually a pretty important part of the sermon. This is the last thing your hearers are going to leave with. When I am writing a sermon or delivering a sermon, um, sometimes you can save a bad sermon with a good ending. And sometimes you can ruin a good sermon with a bad ending, or save a bad sermon with a good ending and ruin a, a good sermon with a bad ending. Um, if you've ever heard someone preach who is a novice preacher or is maybe just having an off day like me, and you're like, this seems like he's trying to wrap it up, but it's like 15 minutes of circling around, right? The metaphor we use is landing the plane. And sometimes you get done with what you really want to say, but it's hard to find that smooth landing to land the plane here. Um, but the, the end of sermons are important, and this is what Jesus chooses to end his sermon with. We've, we've read and talked about and discussed and unpacked all kinds of things, starting from Matthew chapter 5 here to the end of chapter 7, as Jesus has taught uh, a way of being in the world, a way of living, as Jesus has invited and challenged us, as Jesus has convicted us, as Jesus has given us warnings. And now we finally end the sermon in chapter 7, verse 24, if you'll read with me. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And with that, Jesus drops the mic. The sermon is complete, the king's speech is over. It's interesting here that he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a parable, with a story with a metaphor, something for us to enter into and explore, to use our senses, something for us to, to, to use our imaginations. We're invited to explore this world with two types of builders, two types of houses, two types of foundations. This is the third of his three warnings that he ends the sermon with. So we've already kind of talked about Jesus ends his sermon on kind of an not negative, but kind of a warning note. Jesus seems to think that that what's happened in the sermon and how people respond to what he said in the sermon is is extremely eternally important. And so, three times he gives a warning about how one might respond to his words. And I might suggest this last one is the harshest warning, is the the most biting and cutting warning that he gives. He gives it in the the form of a parable. The first warning and the second warning, we were given commands. If you remember the first warning, he says, enter the narrow gate. Enter, that's our command. And the second warning, he says, beware of false prophets. That was our second command. Look out, pay attention, keep our eyes open. And this third one, there's no command. It's just a story. It's a Pretty obvious story at face value. You can probably see how the parable plays out. Um, I didn't know this. I guess I just wasn't in children's church a lot as a kid. There's a a children's Christian children's song about this parable. The wise man built his house on the rock, and on, on, on. And um, you know, as I was reading this week, people were referring to the song in different books and commentaries, and were like, "How you know ironic?" Again, we take what's maybe one of Jesus most scariest right warnings in the Bible and turn it into children's song. We have a long tradition in the Christian church of taking some of the harshest texts in the Bible and turning them into some sanitized, cute little kid stuff like the flood story, right? Um, we've done that as well. And so there's some familiarity with this passage. Um, for some of us, I'm imagining you might have had a song to this passage since you were a child. Um, You've heard it before. And, And the very first Sunday we started this series, I said, my only real goal in going through this sermon is to get you to listen to it. To get you to hear it anew. As if you had never heard it before. Because there's so many famous parts of it that we've heard and heard and heard. And familiarity can kind of breed a kind of... Lack of urgency to respond to, to, to the text. Um, and so I'm going to read just a, a paraphrase uh, of this, this final uh, passage. It's not kind of a word for word, it's a paraphrase. Again, just kind of a different language. Maybe something in this language will spark up in your mind a, a fresher, new experience of this text. Um, and so um, this from the message, it, it goes like this. These words I speak to you are not accidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. And if you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, or tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who builds his house on the sandy beach. And when the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. And I told you a couple weeks ago as I, I was re-preaching the sermon to a, at a chapel to some students, being kind of surprised at how harsh the end of the sermon was. Um, in, in the original language, in Greek, it's even harsher. The sermon ends. The very last word Jesus speaks here is that adjective that we find in our ESV versions that, that we're reading, if, if you have the black version uh, around you, um, where it says, great was the fall of it. That adjective. How destructive. How great. That's the very last sound spoken by Jesus. He starts with the positive part of the parable and ends with the warning part of the parable. Two ways of building a house. There's no gray area in this parable. Jesus continues into this tradition of saying, look, you can choose one way or the other. There's no middle road here to follow. That last paraphrase we read brought out something interesting. It said um, that you, you need to put into practice The words of Jesus live a life based on this sermon, um, which is obvious in our text. But, But then it said, on the contrary, don't be a person who just goes to Bible studies and just listens to sermons, but never puts those words into action because that is the house that will collapse it's interesting because I think that brings out a truth of this text, which is that if we're applying it to today, the best, I think, application of these, these images, the builder who is wise and, and finds life, and the builder who is foolish and finds destruction, is not a comparison between Christians and non-Christians. It's not a comparison between good church people and you know those heathens out there who you, you don't, you don't listen to Christian radio and don't listen to sermons and don't go to Bible studies and don't tithe and you don't do this or that. That's not the comparison. Note in, in, in the parable, both of the builders are hearing the words of Jesus. What matters, what the difference is, is the way they respond. Some do the words and some do not. And it's the doing that leads to life, and the not doing that leads to destruction. And for Jesus, this is of utmost importance. That word doing, you find a lot in these last in, in this this whole sermon really. It's important in, in the book of Matthew. It could be translated practicing. It comes from the wisdom virtue tradition of the ancient world. Um, We've talked about kind of this kind of idea of virtues uh, as we've gone through certain parts of the sermon, right? And so when Jesus says, don't lust, we see that and go, well, that seems impossible. But then we see Jesus give us, I've called them kind of alternative lifestyles, right? Steps to put in place. Where Jesus doesn't imagine that we can flip a switch and all of a sudden no longer lust. Or that we can flip a switch and all of a sudden no longer have anger towards other people. But he gives us steps to take. So we might start practicing. We might start forming ourselves into people who not only don't just murder, but don't have anger. Who not only don't commit adultery, but don't have lust. People who have a strong prayer life. He uses this image of a foundation. Um, which is, I think, a relevant image to all of us, particularly after Hurricane Harvey. We all probably had this thought going through our minds about our own place of dwelling and our friends and families. Just how is it standing up? If we weren't there, it could be pretty anxiety-inducing. Is there water inside? Is it, is it holding up through the storm as a tree fell on it? What, what has happened? I uh, My cousin is getting married, and, and they got engaged and asked me to, to do the wedding next year, and we were at Thanksgiving asking, like, have you found the hashtag yet, right? Because you got to have the hashtag for your wedding, and you put it on Facebook and Instagram, and everyone can see all the pictures from the wedding, and unfortunately, his last name is Harvey, and so they said the hashtag was happily ever Harvey, and we were like, oh, I don't know if that's such a good hashtag. That might be still too soon. <laughs> it's just kind of an unfortunate situation there that your last name is now associated with like the last big disaster that we all experienced. but we, we we were we were thinking about the foundation of our house. Will it stand up? Our family members, our loved ones, our friends and our neighbors? Lindsay and I. We're, we're fortunate and, and we're able to purchase our first home. Um, and it was really one of those situations where nothing would have happened unless everything kind of went right. Um, you know, all, God kind of put all the pieces into place. And, and it's a very different situation for us because now, instead of renting, which is what I've always done since I moved out to my parents, and, and I don't have to worry about the building, if it's an apartment or the house, right? That's someone else's problem. I'm just here, alive, living inside of it. Now, all of a sudden, it's my problem. And now I've got to know things like a foundation. And I'm calling powers like, look, what tool do I use to put the mulch down so the termites can't get into our house? I'm sending in pictures at Home Depot trying to learn, right? How do, how do I keep this home together? We're learning it's important the, the foundation was repaired a few years ago, and so we're getting that warranty transferred into our name. If, in case there's more foundation issues. This image of the foundation being what's truly important is is, is a fascinating one, a relevant one, and it also points towards the wholeness and the inner personness of the righteousness which Jesus has called us to in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has constantly compared the righteousness he is calling his disciples to live out in the world with the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, which is simply external. Notice that a foundation you don't see. A foundation is a starting point. It's what you build upon. You can have a very pretty outward appearance. You can have a very very fancy-looking building or structure, but if the foundation is weak, when that storm comes, it it flops over. There are lots of people who come to church their entire life, and this is the saddest thing for me. And they hear, and they hear, and they hear, and they never do. This is who Jesus is talking to. It's not about people who hear versus people who don't hear. It's about people who have heard and then just gone on with their lives. Versus people who have heard and said, I'll push all my chips into the center and live this lifestyle. I'll follow you. I will become this we might call them a kingdom Christian versus a nominal Christian. A nominal Christian in name only. We might do the outward things, right? Our outwardly our construction might be fancy. We might go to church a lot. We might tithe. We might know the the right jargon and language. But we've really never done the hard work of sacrifice and the hard work of obedience and following Jesus. And this is the the foolish builder whose house won't withstand a storm. Or we might be kingdom Christians, people who hear and then put into practice. People who hear that we're supposed to be salt and light in the world and then truly sacrifice, make sacrifice in their life to go out and be salt and light in the world. Who take that responsibility serious. People who hear Jesus' instructions about prayer and respond to that seriously, fully, wholly. Who hear Jesus say it's not enough to just swear that you, you have to... Let your yes be yes and no be no. That you're called as a kingdom person to radical honesty. To that, there's no need for promises in your life. There shouldn't be a need for promises because everything you say is true. You don't you don't deal in the realm of lies in gray areas. Not even white lies. You're 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 just an honest person. You're not someone who just loves the people who loves them. You're someone who loves. Even the annoying people, like me. You're someone who loves even the people who, who aren't nice to you. These are the wise people who build their house on the rock. A good foundation, and it's the foundation that will withstand the storm. That's one scholar that says, it's the house that crashes... And this parable is the house of Christians who find Jesus' words important enough to listen to, but not important enough to live by. And I know people who have gone to church for their entire life, much older than I am, and have put in hours of Bible studies that probably have not put in. And yet it just seems like there's very little commitment to Jesus and his teachings beyond having this kind of back pocket card of, I think I'm a Christian because I had this one-time experience, or for this year or two, I did this or that. And I read this parable night. I'm, I'm a little scared, to be honest. How great is the fall of that, that person. The storm that Jesus is referring to here, people have different interpretations of what the storm might be. The storm could be referring to the everyday kind of weather that the trials and tribulations of life bring us. Just being alive brings troubles our way. We get sick. We have relationship problems. We have financial issues we're We're all in solidarity here in this room right now as people who have uh found that you and I are in the world, the real world right, and it is hard, and there are things that hurt and tear and destroy and break apart and and some people see the storm as referring to that, and so the person who follows jesus will will be able to withstand all of those different little pricks all those different little stabs, the death by a thousand paper cuts. There's another way to understand this storm. I think it's it's what Jesus was really meaning. I think, though, this this first interpretation works. It's true. Those who follow Jesus paradoxically are able to withstand the trials and tribulations, and I think paradoxically might have more trials and tribulations because of their commitment to Jesus. But the language that Jesus uses here in in the Bible usually indicates final judgment is in view. Particularly things like water and the storm. These are themes throughout the scriptures. We think back just to the flood story of the final judgment of God sifting through who is his people and who are not his people. And so I think when Jesus talks about this storm, he's talking about that day that will come at one point in all of our lives when we stand before him. And he looks at our life. And he sees, did you follow me? And the last warning, we know people might be surprised at that that day. They might say, Look, I was doing things for you. I'll say, "Yeah, but I didn't know you. I'm Not familiar with you. You're a free agent out there. You never truly invested in me and in my teachings. There's an urgency behind this this parable, this story. That makes me want to reread the Sermon on the Mount. If 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 the final judgment is dependent not upon believing in something, mere cognition or rational acceptance of some statement or truth, not upon a one-time action like a, a prayer or coming down an aisle, but if that final day of separation into eternal life, if that's based on whether we hear and did or whether we just heard and didn't, that makes me really want to flip back to chapter 5 and start reading and work through it again and see what parts of this am I missing. Where do I need to invest my time? Where do I need to get help? Where do I need to start practicing? Where do I need to make sure that I've heard it but I'm also trying to do it? There's an urgency here to these words. There's also a, a a boldness to these words. Think of how bold Jesus is right here. It's it's, it's it's usual for us to think of Jesus as the final authority on matters pertaining to life and God. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. That in a mysterious way, he's... Um, the second person in a, a tri-personal God, a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit all at the same time, one God in three persons. But the people in the first century—if you try to imagine them on this hillside, this big crowd, right—they they don't have that theology with them. They don't know the word Trinity. They've probably never thought about God becoming a man in, in, in Judaism. And yet they hear this Jewish teacher walking around Galilee, getting followers, end his sermon with this, this warning about responding faithfully about, for the final judgment to be on the right side of the team. And, and guess what he doesn't refer to? He doesn't talk about the Father. He doesn't talk about God, the Father. He doesn't talk about the Torah, the law that God gave his people. He doesn't talk about the elders in your village or community at your synagogue. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, the line that will be drawn in the sand is your commitment to me. And here we see a slip, one of the first slips in the identity between Jesus and God the Father where it appears just in the narrative that Jesus seems to take ownership over the authority that only God has. Where we're told more explicitly in places like the Gospel of John that the Father and I are one. And then Paul expounds upon that saying, God in Christ became human, sent his Son out of love. Think about how bold that is so so we're told afterwards that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching in verse 26, or 28. I'm sorry, he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Um, so apparently, when 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 people were teaching back then, a scribe would get up, this would be an expert in the law or in the scriptures, they would get up and they'd teach, and they'd do probably basically what I'm doing, which is teaching what they have. So, like the authority that I have as a preacher really is just to the extent that the authority of the Word of God has. In as much as I say something that reflects what Scripture says is true and equips you to be shaped into a person who hears and, and follows the Scriptures, it has authority. In as much as anything I say doesn't do that, you should throw it in the garbage. File that away in the trash can part of your mind. I have no authority. If I ever start saying, you've heard it said in Colossians 3, do this, but I tell you, and add something new. If I ever get up and end a sermon by saying, at the final judgment, how God will decide who's in and who's out is how you have responded to me, to Mike Skinner whether you've decided to follow what I tell you to do with your life. You should be like, he needs some help. (laughs) Who are our elders again? What are our board members doing? His head's gotten a little bit too big. These are bold words for just a person to say here. And they point towards a a deeper reality in the book of Matthew on a broad scale. So Matthew is structured on as a holistic book in a very specific and, and interesting way. Um, there are five big blocks of teaching in Matthew. And before and after those blocks of teaching, you get Jesus acting, narrative. Narrative, teaching. Narrative, teaching. Narrative, teaching. Narrative, teaching. And there's this rhythm to Matthew. And after every block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount being the first, you get the same phrase that indicates this block of teaching is over. Now we're going to move into a time where Jesus does miracles and interacts with people. It's this phrase right here. When Jesus finished these things, you'll see it five times. It's actually pretty easy if you have a red-letter Bible to flip through and find the five blocks of teaching. Now, we might remember in the Old Testament, so we, we ask the question, why would Matthew write his gospel that way? He didn't have to do that, right? He could have put all Jesus' teachings together and all the narrative together. He intentionally is organizing his book in this way. What is he trying to do to us? What is he, what's he trying to communicate to us in the very structure of his words? Well, he's probably trying to reinforce the, the, the echoes that are already here. So we have a man of God who's gone up on a mountain and is delivering commands for how God's people should behave. Earlier in Matthew, the same man had to flee for his life from a king who wanted to kill him as a baby. And we think if if we're Bible readers familiar with the Old Testament, we think of one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament Moses Moses had to flee for his life as a baby. Moses went up on a mountain and and delivered the commandments. At the center of them, the Ten Commandments. Moses, tradition says, wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's as much as I've got memorized right there. That's the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses. With Matthew's structure, not only is he um, having an echo just in the actual story that's taking place here, Jesus on a mountain giving instructions, that reminds us, Moses, Moses, Moses. But Matthew goes even further and says, look, five blocks of teaching, a new Pentateuch, a new Torah, a new Moses. There's lots of echoes in Matthew that we should see Jesus in light of. Moses, But Jesus just isn't a new Moses. He's a greater Moses. We might say he's the ultimate Moses. And so we ask, what what did Moses do in the Old Testament? Why was he such an important character? Well, ultimately, Moses found his importance in the Exodus. He led God's people through their greatest act of salvation. They were slaves in Egypt. God defeated their oppressors, freed them, and they were led by their leader into the promised land. And in the Old Testament, when things go bad after that, there's talk about a new exodus. There's talk that one day God will come back and do this again for us. We'll send us another leader, maybe a king, a Messiah, the Davidic covenant, the the promise that uh, someone will come from David's line and, and and rule over the nations, and and he'll deliver us from the foes. They thought really the foes were the Romans. They needed to be the ones killed this time, and we're already in the promised land, so we just need them to get out of the way, and we'll be saved and have it all good. But but Jesus doesn't just do a repeat of the Exodus. He He leads God's people through the ultimate exodus as the ultimate Moses. And so the foes that Jesus defeats are not the Romans like the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his armies. It's sin and death and evil itself. And the freedom that that the ultimate Moses, Jesus, buys for us, It's not just freedom from our oppressors, it's forgiveness from our sins. It's freedom from the power of sin over us. It's freedom from the power of death, the consequences of our sins. And the inheritance that the ultimate Moses, Jesus, promises us is not just one slice of land in one part of the world. It's eternal life in the whole world, including heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth. So much about this parable, this sermon, even just for the last two warnings, if you look, there's so much focus on Jesus. It's very Jesus-centered. Lots of first-person pronouns, I, my, mine. In the Greek, the way that the, the... The sentence, these words of mine, that clause, the way it's structured, puts a lot of emphasis on mine. It's a very awkward sentence in Greek because it's emphasizing my words. It's how you respond to what I have just said. Why? Because he's, he's going to be leading a new exodus. We've said before, you can't separate the sermon from the person. Jesus himself is the best interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you want to see what it looks like to be someone who builds their house on the rock. And when the storm comes and they're crucified, they still find life. The Father raises them from death. Look to Jesus. He's the example of that. He's the one who practices holistic inner righteousness. He's the one who loves his enemies. He's the one who has his deep prayer life with God. That's not just for show, but that's just for him and his relationship with the Father. Jesus is the best interpreter of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is kind of an interpretation of his life. And we can't separate the commands to do things in the sermon from the work and person of Jesus himself. Which is just to say this. That the Sermon on the Mount is not calling us to somehow earn our salvation. It's not calling us to somehow be some superhero group of people that God will say, Yeah, y'all, y'all really rocked it out. And because of the things you did, you're in now. No, to respond to this sermon by hearing and doing is simply to respond to Jesus. It's to say, No, you. You are our Lord and our Savior. You do have the authority over our lives. We, we do trust that life, eternal life, is where you are and where you're taking us, is the path that you have called us to walk on. We trust that you have gained victory over death and that victory is guaranteed to us, as we are united with you. And so we hear and we do, but not to somehow just earn it on our own merit. We hear and we do it because of who Jesus is and because of what he will ultimately do in Matthew and has ultimately done for us. So the choice is pretty simple as the sermon wraps up. What kind of builder are you? A a wise one or a foolish one? What kind of builder am I? What kind of builders are we as a community? Are we building on a foundation that leads to life or are we building on a foundation that leads to destruction? Jesus wants more than just astonishment as a response. He wants discipleship. He wants people to follow him, to put into action these words that he has given them. And when the storm comes, some houses will stand and other houses will fall. And oh, how great their flaw will be. Will you pray with me? Our prayer today comes from a prayer composed for the Lambeth Conference of Anglican Bishops in 1948. And we'll pray a prayer that they composed that goes along with the sermon. Almighty God, give us grace to be not only hearers, but doers of thy holy word. Not only to admire, but to obey thy doctrine. Not only to profess, but to practice. Thy religion, not only to love, but to live Thy gospel. So grant that what we learn of Thy glory we may receive into our hearts and show forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.